So let's pray. Father, you are good, and you are good to us, and we praise you for who you are and for bringing us here today to to feed from your word in Sunday school, but more importantly, in your your worship service later on. And so we do pray for that service, that it would be edifying to us and glorifying to you in the way we sing, in the way we pray, in the way we study your word. Um, and as we open up uh, your word right now in this, in this text in First Timothy, I pray that you would give us open eyes and open hearts to receive your word and to submit to the truth contained in it. And we pray this in, in Jesus' name, amen. This week we're continuing our study through Kevin DeYoung's book, Men and Women in the Church. And this week we're going to be going through chapter 6 of the book. And this chapter deals with one of the most crucial texts regarding men and women and their distinct roles in the church. And this text is 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. So you want to turn there. We're going to be in, in the text quite a bit. And I'm going to read it for us. So 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 8, I'll read through verse 15, or the end of the chapter. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So DeYoung aptly um, names this chapter on this text the heart of the matter, the heart of the matter, because in a lot of ways this is the text, or this text is key in complementarian belief, at least in regard to the role of men and women in the church, and more specifically, the complementarian belief that affirms that, that qualified males alone can be the elders and leaders in a local congregation. This is the foundational text for these beliefs. And because of this text's importance to this debate, Dion gives a fairly detailed explanation of the text and takes on many of the debated the, the debated uh, statements and even words uh, in this passage. And as DeYoung says on this, the first page of this text, and really in my research this week I found this to be 100% true, but, but almost every word and statement is debated in this passage. Literally every word. There's been a ton of ink spilt over these verses in Scripture and I do want to say before beginning, I think this is the best chapter in the book, personally. Um, the Young does a wonderful job of engaging with the different views and scholarship, and I think he convincingly argues the complementarian position in an effective and, and powerful way. 
So if you haven't read the chapter, I encourage you to get the book. Read that chapter. It's worth the price of the book. Um, But de Young begins this chapter by detailing in some length the debate surrounding the context of 1 Timothy. And for some scholars, the, the context of the letter is the most important component or one of the most important components to interpreting this text. Timothy was a pastor of a congregation in Ephesus, which some have noted that Ephesus was a hotbed of a, of a radical form of feminism in its day. And as DeYoung points out, there was a, a cult of the goddess Artemis, is that right? Artemis, which typified these, these feminist principles that saturated first century Ephesus. Now, why any of this matters to this passage is that some scholars will then conclude that this teaching regarding women that we see in 1 Timothy 2, women in the church, is culturally unique to the context of Ephesus, which was rampant with this extreme form of feminism. And therefore, they will conclude, this text can't be applied to all Christians throughout all time. Because they would say Paul was only addressing a particular context and a particular culture. Now I want us to think about this this claim for a little bit, because I think it's important. In principle, there is nothing wrong with, in fact, I would argue it's very beneficial to to have a good interpretation of a text. One must take into account the cultural context that the original author was writing in. That's that's good exegesis. Good exegesis always takes into account the larger context that a text appears in. So that is a good and true principle. But we must always be careful of becoming fanciful with our contextual constructions in order to fit our our preconceived beliefs. This is a danger for everybody, not just egalitarians. I think we all face this danger when approaching a text. But we must try as best as we can, to be faithful to the original context the text was written in. Now what I think is clear is what we do know from Paul, Paul's own writing that we see in 1 Timothy, on his his reason for writing, or Paul's reason that he gives in 1 Timothy. Douglas Moo has a really helpful essay on this text and the broader context of it. And and he argues, we see in 1 Timothy 3.15, so a chapter later, 1 Timothy 3.15, that Paul was writing to Timothy to remind him of how Christians ought to behave in the household of God, right? In the church, how Christians ought to behave. So that is Paul's purpose for writing the letter. And the reason Paul has to remind remind Timothy of this is because in verse 3 of chapter 1, we see that the church in Ephesus is under the threat of false teaching. Is under the threat of false teaching. And certain people from within the church have departed from the the true teaching of the gospel and embraced some forms of a false teaching or a false gospel. So Paul wrote this letter to address those teachings and to remind Timothy of how Christians are to act in the church, their, their specific roles in the church. Now, the the egalitarian scholarship on this text is varied, and there really is a a ton of different theories and arguments out there. So I'm going to have to speak in generalities, because we don't have the time to engage each one. But much has been made of the nature of the false teachers in Ephesus. 
As de Jong already pointed out, some scholars want to say that it was a form of, of a radical feminism that was the false teaching infiltrating the church and that it, that, that feminism is what Paul is addressing in our text this morning. Again, the point of this claim is to say that this teaching from Paul is not universal, but only in regard to this particular false teaching that existed in the Ephesian context. So do, do you see kind of the, the issue the, or, or the move they're trying to make? Now, Doug, Mew, Doug Moo makes the helpful point that Paul in the text tells us remarkably little about the specifics of the false teaching in Ephesus. And this is probably because he's addressing Timothy, who's already well acquainted with the false teachers and their teaching. So there, there would be no need for Paul to explain to, to Timothy the nature of the false, false teaching. Moo's point is that we can't be fully sure about the, the precise nature of this false teaching, and in particular, the impact this teaching had on the women in the church. We just can't know for sure. Therefore, we should be very careful, and I would argue that we should then avoid making sweeping um, theological or, or interpretive conclusions on this text based on extra-biblical contextual data regarding the false teachers. Because the simple fact is, we just don't know the exact nature of the false teaching other than what the text says about the false teaching. So we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't hitch our interpretation of this text to any claim to know what the false teaching, the exact nature of the false teaching. And further to the point, de Young in this chapter goes to great lengths to prove that these claims that, that radical femini- feminism was prevalent in Ephesus are actually just false. De Young writes, The problem with this reconstruction is that it is more fiction than fact. Ephesus was a fairly typical Greco-Roman city. So based on the, the historical data then, de Young argues that it's hard to substantiate the claim of a radical feminism being present in Ephesus. The the political, cultural, and religious practices were not out of the ordinary to other similar ancient cities. All the the magistrates and civil groups were dominated by men, and although there were priestesses, priestesses, I feel like Gollum from Lord of the Rings, female priests in Ephesus, most of their pagan religious priests were men. The point de Young is making is that there's little evidence that there was a, a radical feminism dominating the city. Men held the, the institutional power like a typical Greco-Roman city. And in this way then, Ephesus was a fairly unremarkable city in regard to women. So the claims that that the false teaching that was infiltrating the church, there were, were a radical feminism, or that the women in the congregation are the ones who were propagating the false teaching, just don't seem to hold up. And actually, this kind of misses the point, because we, should think, we shouldn't think that Paul's focus in 1 Timothy is as narrow as the one congregation in Ephesus that he's writing to. No, Paul's teaching, the the main principles he seeks to communicate 
is binding and, and applicable to all churches everywhere. Remember 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul is concerned with how Christians should conduct themselves in God's household. That applies to all churches, I think. It applies to all churches everywhere. So do you have any questions regarding the, the context of the letter or anything we've talked about so far? Comments? First Timothy? I'm I'm not sure. I don't think so. I don't think the pastoral Yeah. But he is at the Ephesian church. <clears throat> so in jumping into the text, in First Timothy two eight, Paul begins this section of the letter with a stated desire of his that men should lift up their hands in prayer without anger or fighting. DeYoung makes the point that he doesn't think the the emphasis on this passage is on the posture of prayer with hands raised, as other places of Scripture call or describe prayer in, in different positions, like on the face or prostrate, things of this nature. Rather, the point is about the internal piety of the men, the men's hearts being in a righteous place. So, he commends them not to pray with anger or fighting. He is confronting the inward motive of the state of the men in the congregation, or the, or the inward heart condition, which is important to note and as we go into verses 9 and 10, which are more controversial. Because in verses 9 and 10, Paul moves to address the women in the congregation, and Paul commands women to dress modestly and self-controlled. DeYoung argues this means that women should have a sense of moderation and, and refraining from sensuality in the way they dress. The idea is Christian women should not bring undue attention upon themselves with their dress. Second, Paul says women are not to dress with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothing. <clears throat> Moo makes the point that, that these items of adornment would have signified and flaunted in the Ephesian culture wealth or, or extravagance and draw attention to uh, a seductive external beauty of a woman rather than the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit like that, that Peter talks about in 1 Peter in a very similar text as being fitting for a Christian woman. Third, women are to dress with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works, is what Paul says. This is a, a, a difficult phrase to interpret, but DeYoung points out that what Paul is doing here, as with his command to, to the men in verse 8, is moving inwards from appearance to the heart attitude of the woman. So a Christian woman's clothing should reflect godly conduct and good works. Now, is Paul saying wearing braids or gold or pearls or expensive clothing are inherently always wrong for Christian women to wear? I would argue no. And this is where this gets a little complicated and where egalitarians will like to pounce on me um, and say I'm being inconsistent. But I don't think that's the case, or I wouldn't hold the position, so hear me out. And... DeYoung makes the same or very similar argument as well. 
I do not think the prohibition on the Ephesian women's braided hair and expensive adornment and gold pearls is the main point or the main principle that Paul is teaching. So if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we went through 1 Corinthians 11, I'm about to make a very similar argument that I did there. Paul's main point, the main principle that is binding on all Christian women forever is that women are to dress modestly with self-control and not to bring undue attention to themselves in the way they adorn themselves. Tying it back to verse 8 with men, Paul is concerned here about the inward heart posture of the men and women in the local church. And that does matter with outward expression. So how a man prays and how a woman dresses is important. So don't misunderstand me here. This text does have something to teach us. But the focus here is on the internal maturity and the accompanying external modesty that comes with that spiritual maturity of the Christian woman. And DeYoung makes the point that this must be the case because braided hair, gold, pearls, and expensive clothing are not intrinsically evil. Right? He makes the point that depictions of heaven in Revelation have um, pictures of, or uh, ideas, or, or, yeah, how would I say this? Pictures of, of gold and pearls as a description of the heavenly city. So the main issue then is when Christian women wear clothing that, that is sensual or, or showy or extravagant. And by extravagance, I mean exceeding what is reasonable or appropriate in a setting, specifically financially appropriate or, or relating to, to wealth or flaunting one's wealth. So in the Ephesian context, gold, pearls, braided hair, and expensive clothing would convey a distracting and ungodly adornment that was not fit for Christian women. My argument is that may not be the case today. It might be, but it might not be the case today. In fact, I don't, I don't think it's the case today. But women, women you, 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 you must not throw everything out with this verse. God cares very much how you dress. That's the point of the text. The principle here still applies. Your dress must not be extravagant or showy or seductive. And there is a tension here because the Bible doesn't teach that a woman should abstain from trying to display her God-given beauty or, or elegance, which is glorifying to God. So, But Paul in this text is saying your dress and hairstyle should convey, should show a, a changed heart that seeks to reflect modesty, godliness, and good works. This obviously takes wisdom for, for women on how to apply this, and I'm not up to date on the latest female fashion trends, so I'm not going to give any advice. But this is one of those things where I think you kind of know it when you see it. You know um, when a woman is trying to impress or flaunt outwardly with her clothing and adornment for the purpose of bringing undue attention on herself. And this is what I think a Christian woman must avoid, Paul is saying. And these verses are really, again, about an inward heart posture. So a good diagnostic question based on this text could be, am I wearing this clothing or this, this hairstyle to be noticed sensually or extravagantly? 
Because I think that that's a good question to get at the heart of what Paul is speaking against. Now, the reasons egalitarians will say I'm being consistent because in, in the next verses, I'm going to make the claim that the commands on women that there are not culturally sensitive in a way the pro- prohibition against braids, gold, pearls, and expensive clothing are. But notice carefully, as with 1 Corinthians 11, I am claiming the principle. Paul's main point to women is binding on Christians everywhere and always. But what egalitarians claim is that the rest of 1 Timothy 2 should be ignored by Christians because it is also culturally bound to a certain time in a certain place. And so I reject this, this kind of argument, and hopefully you'll be convinced as well as we go on. So any questions, comments before moving on? Yeah, I agree with that. He probably did it in private. I assume. Yeah, I mean, I think it probably depends on. They probably wouldn't say ignored. I probably could have used a better word. Not applicable, maybe would be the better word. But they would, they would then do what I just did with those verses, with the following verses. Um, trying to make a logical connection, if that makes sense. So next, let, let's look at verse 11. <clears throat> Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, our, our eyes and ear probably immediately go that women should learn quietly and submissive in this text. But I think it's important to notice the word learn, let a woman learn. As DeYoung points out, this is no small thing. This is rather a, a, a rather countercultural statement from Paul that a woman ought to learn. Women learning was not generally a practice that was promoted or even accepted by some Jews. And this isn't Paul's main point in this verse, but it just... It's just an important to note that it is good for women to learn about God and doctrine, provided if they follow Paul's commands in this text. And Paul first says that women should learn quietly, or some translations may say in silence. It's important to first recognize that Paul is not meaning to be demeaning here, even if that's, that's how it seems to us. De Young points out helpfully that quietness and silence are positive qualities for learners, which is what Paul says women should be doing in local church gatherings, right? Learning. A positive quality of learning is to be quiet while learning. And we know from our study of 1 Corinthians 14 earlier in this series that Paul does not mean complete silence or quietness because he allows for women to, to pray and prophesy in Corinth. And DeYoung makes the connection to 1 Corinthians 14 that what Paul is doing here is saying, in saying women must be quiet, is that both texts that, that say that are referring to the teaching ministry in a local church. So it's really important to notice that. So, so DeYoung writes, in the context of corporate worship, women are not to be teachers but quiet 
learners. Paul is commanding the, the women to learn quietly and to be wise learners. And Paul then says that women must learn in all submissiveness. DeYoung argues that this phrase, all submissiveness, clarifies why women are expected to be quiet. And that by her quiet learning, she is displaying her submissive role to, I think, the, the male elders in a congregation who are the ones regularly teaching God's word. Now it's important to note that verse 12 is very closely connected to verse 11. Paul writes, I do not permit a woman, this is verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. DeYoung and Mu both argue that, that these two verses are syntactically connected um, and create one unit. The, the women should remain quiet or silent begins and ends this unit. So notice we see that phrase at the beginning of verse 11 and then the end of verse 12. This phrase serves then as a bookend uh, to this uh, unit of this unit of thought from, from Paul, and, in, and I would argue it's the main idea of the unit. So the central idea is women should be silent or quiet while learning in the church. In the middle of these bookends, we see an explanation from Paul what it means for women to learn in quietness and full submission. And that is women should not teach or exercise authority over men. Another way to say this is that verse 12, where Paul prohibits women from teaching or exercising authority over men, is how a woman is to carry out her, her submission to the elders and learning quietly in the local church. So now on to the, the exact language and phrases of verse 12, which is, I'm sure as you can guess, the, the most debated of all these verses. Maybe, I mean, I don't know. DeYoung highlights how there is much debate surrounding the phrase, I do not permit. I do not permit. So some scholars argue that because this verb is found in the present tense in Greek, which it is, that Paul is only applying this verse to a limited and temporary context. In other words, because of the present tense, this verse is only to be applied to the church in Ephesus. Not all churches everywhere. So the verse would better be translated for these scholars as, I am not presently allowing a woman to teach. I am not presently allowing a woman to teach. Yes. With the implication being Paul would allow for women to teach in a different context. So goes their argument. The issue is we can't know just from a present tense verb whether or not Paul only seeks to limit the prohibition he's giving to a certain context. We can't know that just from the simple fact that the verb is present. If the present tense verb automatically meant that, then as DeYoung argues, we would have to throw out a whole lot of New Testament commands, basically a great deal of them. Think of Romans 12.1, where Paul appeals to the Roman church to present their bodies as a living sacrifice and to be transformed. That is a present tense verb. Is Paul intending it only to be binding on the church in Rome then? I think that is highly unlikely, and no one really thinks that. Um, so I don't find this argument persuasive at all. 
which would be more evidence, I think, to conclude that this text is actually binding on all churches everywhere, not just the church in Ephesus. The next phrase DeYoung deals with is a, a woman to teach. I do not permit a woman to teach. So what does teach mean here? Again, uh, a, a massive amount of interpretations and theories out there, mostly by egalitarians. Some of them argue that what Paul is meaning here in this word is that he's commanding that women can't teach error because the women in Ephesus were unlearned and, or, or influenced by this radical form of feminism, so they, they were believing false things. So the idea is they can't teach wrong things. So Paul is not prohibiting women teaching men altogether, but only that women don't teach error to men. I think this is extremely unlikely and really a, a, a fanciful interpretation of the text. And de Young is really helpful in showing that the errors in this argument. First and most obvious is if you look down at the text, the verse doesn't explicitly say anything remotely close to this. Um, it just says simply, I do not permit a woman to teach. It doesn't talk about false teaching or error or uneducated women, which Paul definitely had in his vocabulary, the word for false teaching, if he wanted to use that word. Paul even uses that word elsewhere in 1 Timothy. So when Paul wants to say false teaching, he says the word for false teaching. In verse 12, Paul does not use the word for false teaching. And when Paul uses the word for teaching in verse 12 and in other places in the pastoral epistles, the word is almost always used in a positive sense of teaching the truth of the gospel and the apostolic message. De Young's final rebuttal to this argument is that it just doesn't make sense why Paul would command that women are prohibited from teaching error, but not men. Especially because all of the false teachers that are mentioned um, in the pastoral epistles were all men. So it's pretty clear Paul means here um, teaching positively, not, not false or teaching with error. And Mu, Douglas Moo helpfully argues that in the pastoral epistles, teaching always means authoritative, authoritative doctrinal instruction. Authoritative doctrinal instruction. So what Paul is prohibiting here is that women are not, to, are not permitted to teach in the church. That is, communicate or declare authoritative doctrinal instruction to men in a church. And this is really important. Complementarians cut the cake in different places on how to apply this. Um, and we're going to talk about the practical side of this next week more in depth, but we can say, I think, now that it seems Paul is definitely prohibiting women from preaching at the weekly gathering of a church or, or teaching the Bible and doctrine in an audience or in a congregation that has men present at a church. Again, next week we'll go more into how this practically works out in the different ministries of a church. So now to the final phrase of the verse, or to exercise authority over men. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. So now 
you probably could have guessed, but this phrase is also massively disputed by egalitarians. Um, some scholars suggest that this phrase really should be translated to domineer. So, to this interpretation, the meaning of the text would be that Paul is prohibiting women to domineer men in the congregation or getting authority improperly or to usurp the authority of men. Now, this is probably the most interesting of the egalitarians' arguments and the argument with the most meat on the bone, mainly because the particular word authority is not used a lot in the New Testament. Um, so, it, to come to an exact meaning of the word can be a challenge for scholars. But I'm still not convinced by the egalitarians' argument. Um, one thing to note, and this is an argument that DeYoung highlights, that is a little technical. Art was saying he was, he was struggling with it in reading the chapter. I did too, but it's a technical argument. But the idea is that teaching and authority in this verse are cl so closely linked to each other that both are either positive or negative. DeYoung cites recent grammatical studies on this verse in the rest of the New Testament that has this exact, the, the, the same construction, the same syntactical construction of the words. And the result of this study shows that when this linguistic pattern is used by the New Testament authors, then the two activities or concepts are either both positive or negative. So in this verse, Paul is either forbidding women from teaching error and domineering, or he's forbidding them from teaching and having authority altogether. Now, this argument is very disputed. It's not a slam dunk. Um, but I would just say that even if you reject this argument from DeYoung, the plain reading of the text seems to indicate that the word means authority over. There, there's, there's little evidence to, to, to come to the conclusion that it means to domineer or to usurp authority. Douglas Moo has done a comprehensive study of this word and said based on his um, evidence that, that he has encountered that the most realistic and the, and the probable interpretation of this word is a positive connotation of authority over or rule over. So not in the sense of domineering or, or usurping. Now if this word means authority over then the meaning of the verse is quite clear. Women, Paul is saying, are not to teach or exercise authority over men. And DeYoung has a helpful summary of these two verses, verses 11 and 12, to kind of bring everything all together with all of this, these different arguments and lines of thinking. He argues that the best option, the most faithful option to interpreting these verses, is to see the prohibition of no teaching and no authority over men from Paul as the explanation of what it means for women to learn in quietness, right, without teaching, and in full submission without authority over men. So I think that makes the, the most sense of these two verses. And then in the following verses, verses 13 and 14, Paul gives the reason, the grounds for why he's making this prohibition, um, but before we go there, any comments, questions? Good. So Paul gives two reasons, two grounds for his prohibition on women's role in the church, women's 
teaching in the church. And we find these in verses 13 and 14. First, in verse 13, Paul says the reason for this, for these prohibitions, is that Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam was formed first and then Eve. So if you remember back to our lesson in Genesis 1 through 3, if you were here or if you've listened, this should make absolute sense. Because remember that the order in creation doesn't imply superiority of the, of the man, but it does teach something very important about the role of the man. That is, the, he is the head and the leader of the woman in the garden. So in the man being created first, it implied a headship and leadership role to the man. And we also saw that in this, in that in being created first, the man had the role, or you could say the job, given by God to, to name the animals and even the woman, and to protect the garden as the leader, as the head of the woman. And that is how Paul is interpreting the creation account in Genesis as well, because he's saying the reason women are prohibited from teaching or exercising authority in the church is for that reason, because Adam was formed before Eve. The man was created before the woman. He isn't saying the man is intrinsically better than the woman, But Paul is, I think, saying that in the created order, in how God ordered the world, the man was created to be the head, the the leader of the woman, his wife. And Paul is taking that principle in the created order, and he's applying it to male headship or male leadership in the church. The second reason Paul gives for his prohibition to women in the church is found in verse 14, where Paul says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now this verse is harder to interpret than the previous verse, but really the main point is the same regardless of what you think Paul is meaning here. Young points out that there's two main interpretations of what Paul could be meaning here, or at least that complementarians give. First, Paul may be making a statement about the nature of women in general, that they are more easily deceived than men. Now, it's important to note that proponents of this view, at least the ones that I'm aware that hold this view and that are complementarian, don't mean by this that women are inferior to men or less, less capable of living righteously than men. Rather, the idea is, as DeYoung points out, that women and men have naturally different inclinations and natural sin sin tendencies intrinsic to their their sex. So men may be more prone to harshness and and anger because they are typically more aggressive and assertive by nature. And women who are generally more sensitive to the emotional feelings of others may perhaps compromise on the truth for the sake of, of the of the relationship with the other because they have an emotional sensitivity to that relationship. The idea is that certain inclination in women may cause them to be more tempted to doctrinal deception. So if this interpretation is correct, then Paul is forbidding women to teach or exercise authority over men because women, on the whole, generally, like Eve before them, are more likely to acquiesce to doctrinal um, deviation as DeYoung puts it. So that's one interpretation. Another one that DeYoung argues, and I think this is his interpretation, 
is that Paul may be making a statement about what happens when the roles of men and women are reversed in verse 14. So the idea here is that Paul is making note of the truth that Adam was supposed to be the head of the relationship with Eve, and he abdicated his role as leader, and Eve's leadership led him into evil. She was the one deceived. And the result of this role reversal was that sin entered the world. So in verse 14, Paul is pointing to this difference between the two guilty persons in the garden. Adam sinned, but Eve was deceived. And by highlighting this difference, DeYoung argues that Paul is grounding his argument in God's good design for men and women, which was supplanted in the fall. So another way to think about this or to to say the same idea would be man was supposed to be the leader in the garden. He failed in his leadership and Eve was deceived. So now Paul is saying in the church, we should not fall into the same trap. Men were designed to be the leaders in the church. So the, the distortion of the created order by the fall is used as a contrast of what God's design is for the church. I think that is what DeYoung is getting at. Honestly, I read this a few times. I have a hard time understanding the second argument, um, so I may not have articulated it perfectly well. And I don't really have a strong opinion personally on either of these interpretations. At the moment, if you were to press me, I think I slightly learned to the, to the, to the first one that I gave. Um, but the point Paul is making is clear, and that is Paul is grounding his command that women must not teach or exercise authority over men in creation. In creation, not any cultural reason. And DeYoung argues that Paul's rationale for role distinctions in the church is rooted in Genesis 1 through 3, which transcends all cultures. Thus, we can make the claim from this text that Paul doesn't present, per, permit women to teach or exercise authority over men in the church because to do so would violate God's original good design for men and women. And that is, I think that is absolutely huge in this debate. And honestly, I think this is the, the death blow to any form of of egalitarianism because it is very hard to make this text say something other than what than what it's saying. And trust me, egalitarians have tried. And even with all debate the debate that surrounds this text, it actually is quite clear what Paul is commanding. I think it's it the the main point, the command is very clear. I think just modern ears and interpreters, just for whatever reason, for a variety of reasons, just don't like the conclusion that Paul makes or the command that Paul gives. And I think that's a good reminder to us that no matter how we feel or how the text makes us feel emotionally or this topic in general makes us feel, if we seek to submit to the Word of God above all other authority, then we must submit to what it says here regardless of our feelings on the text. And what the text says here in 1 Timothy 2 is that Paul prohibits women from teaching or exercising authority over men in the church because to do so would go against God's created design for men and women. That's, that's 
the main point. That's the clear teaching that Paul is getting. Any questions or comments before we go to verse 15? Um, if y'all didn't hear, Dennis is saying there's a connect. There could be a connection in Genesis two where Adam is given. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is giving a prophet-like role, or is a, a type of prophet where God is revealing to him the command to not eat, and he, uh, Eve is interpreting that command that Adam gave wrongly. Is that it? Or he transmitted it wrongly. Yeah, I have not seen. And he's saying, does that does that connection have anything to do with this text or this debate about women's role in the church? I have not seen any of those connections, um, but I haven't read everything. Um, and I would have to I would have to think about it more to say something publicly. Yeah, but I, it's interesting. You can go research it and write a paper for us. With all your free time. <laughs> I am going to get into that exact question. That's where I would say complementarians disagree. Some would say yes, that's allowed. Others would say no. Just to show my card, I would be in the camp that says no. Um, but we'll go into that debate in more detail. Yeah. Good question. I don't think so. At least not the egalitarian and the complementarian position as they're stated, because they would be, one would say, women can teach and exercise authority over men. Oh. oh, back to Dennis. Sorry, sorry. I misunderstood. Yeah, you and Dennis will have to go get coffee and hash this out and report back to us. Just yeah, I don't know. I haven't I haven't studied the Genesis two account enough to to make an educated comment that is beneficial for us. Yeah, that, that's for sure. Oh, you're talking about the whose fault was it in the yeah? I don't think we can make a conclusion from the text one way or the other that it was Adam's lack of communicating it well or her receiving it wrong. I, I don't know. They're both to blame. Yeah, I don't know. I can't tell you. All right, let's go to verse 15, and then we'll be done. Now, verse 15 is the last one we're going to look at, obviously. Um, it's also, yeah, it's a very difficult verse to interpret. Now, I think it's really important to note that the interpretation of this particular verse doesn't change the meaning of the verses we've studied so far um, that precede this verse. Does that make sense? But verse 15, it, it does conclude the paragraph and Paul's unit of thought in this letter, so we need, to, we need to see, we need to know what's going on here. It's important. Paul says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So DeYoung is quick to point out here that, that we need to realize that Paul is not talking about saved in the sense of justification here, or how we generally talk about salvation. A woman is not justified by her childbearing, 
um, because salvation is, is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not, not any works. So we need to interpret this verse in a Philippians 2.12 kind of way, is the argument Dion gives, where Paul there in Philippians says, we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There, Paul is not saying we can earn our salvation in any way, but that as those who are saved, Christians strive to be obedient to the Lord in their working and their and their working out their salvation. The young argues this is the same sense of salvation that Paul is intending in this verse, and I think that's a, a, exactly right how we should be reading this verse. So, how is a woman giving birth? a way in which a woman displays her salvation through obedience to Christ? That's the question. And this is difficult to answer, but I agree with DeYoung and Mu, who, who argue that through giving birth, a woman demonstrates obedience to her God-given identity as a woman. Mu argues verse 15 is best interpreted as designating the circumstances in which Christian women will experience working out their salvation by maintaining as priorities those key roles that Paul highlights of women. Or we could say of of biblical femininity. So in other words, a woman embracing and living out her God-given roles and displaying true femininity is a way she is living obedient to the Lord, working out her salvation. And I think this this interpretation makes sense in the context of chapter 2. So the idea Paul is portraying in in these verses, verses 8 through 15, is that a godly woman in the church embraces her true femininity in, in dressing modestly, learning quietly, bearing children, and continuing in faith, love, and holiness. That's that's the picture Paul is painting for Christian women in the church. Now, of course, some women will not have children for medical reasons or, or singleness or, or other reasons. But as DeYoung points out, so far as it is possible, childbearing is one of the unique ways in which women can accept in obedience to the Lord her God-given design of being a woman. And Moo points out that in the context of 1 Timothy, the woman Paul is referring to in the letter or in the congregation in Ephesus were were probably, just given the historical context, probably all married. Um, So that is why he may mention this one central role of childbearing as opposed to something else that is fundamental to femininity. So childbearing then is not an end-all, be-all of femininity, but because he's speaking to wives who were presumably bearing and raising children, that is why he chose childbearing. And that is still generally the case today, and I think across all cultures. That is, um, women have children, typically. So that's how I would interpret verse 15. That might not be satisfactory. But again, the main point I would say is your interpretation of verse 15 really has no bearing on the big question of the text is what role do women have in um, the local church more specifically, not being, not teaching or exercising authority over men. And I would say people land on different places, even within the complementarian camp, on how to best interpret and apply verse 15 
So I know we've had to kind of fly through a lot of material here, but I really want to emphasize again, this is really important stuff and really the key foundational text for our beliefs on what we do in the church regarding men and women and our roles. So it's, it's vitally important. It's the heart, as De Young says, of the whole complementarian, egalitarian debate. And next week, we're going to apply a lot of what we just learned this week practically, which is, will be very fun. Um, so thank you for your time and attention, and we'll see you next week, Lord willing. You're dismissed. <laughs>